As a teenager in the 1990s, Vivian Yoon heard K-pop music playing in the supermarkets and restaurants growing up in Koreatown in Los Angeles. And long before the world became enamoured with K-pop, she loved the music with catchy beats and the artists with their perfect haircuts and curated clothes and polished choreography. But she kept her fan status a secret. As a second-generation Korean, she leaned into American culture to fit in. And 20 years on, the writer and performer is exploring the rise of K-pop for a podcast that gives her a chance to reflect on the ways music can say so much about identity, community and Korean history. The podcast is called K-Pop Dreaming and Vivian Yoon joins us now. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now you're into this, you're a day one. You're into K-pop well before BTS and Blackpink. What drew you to it? You know, I'm not sure that it was like a conscious choice to like K-pop because it was just so, um, it was just such a part of the daily fabric of my life growing up in Koreatown in Los Angeles. So it was just, the music was everywhere. You know, you walk into a grocery store, like you said, or you walk into like the video store, the Korean video store, and there's K-pop playing all the time, which is kind of how it still is in Koreatown, by Mm. the way. You walk into like any Korean barbecue restaurant and they will be playing like K-pop music videos on TVs. Yeah. So, yeah. And and then, but instead of embracing it, you sort of, I think it's fair to say, hid your love of this music and this culture. Why was that? I did. Um, Growing up, you know, it's that classic story of, really not seeing a lot of people who look like you being represented in media, right? So like, I was growing up watching like Nickelodeon and Disney Channel. And then as I got older, I started getting into like, old SNL and comedy. And there were just no Koreans, like I saw no Asian faces looking back at me. And so I think in order to try and fit into American culture, I really leaned into all of those things. And my dad was also like, super Americanized, as we say, right? Like he moved to the States when he was like five or six years old and he had grown up here and he had served in the U.S. Army and and all of those things also kind of contributed to this feeling of like me wanting to be seen as American, just like my dad was. It sounds like you needed Um, your podcast back in those days. You know, I think if I had heard my podcast, my life would have looked really, really different for sure. Are there signature characteristics for people who've never come across k-pop before are there you know is there something in the lyrics or the beat that makes it a k-pop song or is it just that it's by a korean group or, or singer you know that's kind of tough um i think if you ask a lot of people now what makes k-pop k-pop it's sort of hard to give an answer these days because groups are so global facing now yeah. like a lot of a lot of K-pop groups like intentionally have international members or like non-Korean members. Yeah. A lot of the members speak English and things like that. So it's kind of interesting because the definition I think is sort of changing of like, is the Korean part super important uh, when categorizing a group as K-pop or are K-pop groups even considered K-pop now that they're international? But one thing that I came across a bunch when I was sort of interviewing different producers and, you know, songwriters and things like that who work in the K-pop industry, they all pointed to this one musical element called bong or bongjak. And that is the thing that sort of sets 
K-pop apart musically. So there is kind of this musical element and it's kind of elusive and a little hard to explain, but um, there is something that sets Korean pop music apart. And the interesting thing to me when I heard about bong or bongchak is that I knew of it as like a different word for this genre of Korean music called trot, mm. which is like a hundred years old and really stems from, you know, back a century ago when like Korea was um, occupied by Imperial Japan. And so like the thing that makes K-pop distinct, this musical element called bongchak, which is sort of like gives K-pop its soul. Uh, it comes from this super old genre of music um, that was influenced by Korean history. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and probably a good time to mention that you weave the history of K-pop with the history of your own family. You spoke to your grandmother about music in Korea, in South Korea, around that time. And you really can see the roots of K-pop in that era, huh? Yeah, and it's so interesting. There's this thing with, I think, a lot of children of immigrants, especially Korean immigrants, for some reason, um, a lot of us grew up not knowing the stories of our family history. And I had no concept of what my grandma's life was like before she moved to the U.S. or even before me. Um, and so getting to talk to her and hear her story about surviving like you know, colonization and then World War II and then the Korean War. Um, it was it was a lot. And all of a sudden, these like musical trends and influences and the way the music changed over time, it became so much more real to me connecting it to the story of my grandma, how, you know, she was just a young girl when she woke up to the sounds of bombs falling on Seoul, like things like that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. That was, that was really meaningful for me. Yeah, and, and music is such a powerful part of national identity, isn't it? In fact, I think um, South Korea actually banned Japanese music following their occupation, the end of the occupation in 1945. And when your grandmother moved to uh, California, I think it was, were, were those memories of the music she listened to super important to her? I actually think they lied dormant for a while yeah. um, until the resurgence of Trot in, you know, the last couple years with a show called Mr. Trot, where like all of a sudden young people were getting into the genre and like you had anywhere from like kids who are like 10 years old to, you know, singers in their 20s and 30s singing these old Trot songs that my grandma grew up with. And all of a sudden, like that show really reignited her love for the music. And I think a lot of us, even if we don't admit it, kind of get our musical tastes from our parents and our parents' record collection. That was a bit more complicated for you because your dad, your dad describes himself as a Twinkie. Can you can you explain that idea? Yeah, he used to call himself a Twinkie, which is uh, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. He grew up in Fresno, California, and and went to you know. Fresno State and played football and and then joined the U.S. Army and before that he was like you know, waving lighters at Pink Floyd concerts and doing the whole thing. And so when I was growing up, I was listening to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and Cream and <laughs> CCR. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so just like this little, yeah, little eight-year-old Korean girl singing, um, you know, proud, I know Senator yeah. Sun or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Midnight special. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Exactly. And so back to this Korean music story. So... A lot of people don't realize there are a lot of New Zealand story uh, soldiers in that um, Korean War in the 50s, more than 3,000. But I think it was maybe the African-American soldiers who left an impression on the music scene 
there. Can you trace a bit of that for us? Yeah, for sure. So uh, after World War II um, and as a result of the Korean War, the U.S. basically decided to have a permanent military presence stationed in South Korea um, from that point on. So even now you have American military bases uh, all across South Korea. And in the 80s, when hip hop was kind of, you know, rising in the U.S. and it, and it was becoming this global phenomenon in the late 80s, uh, that phenomenon reached South Korea too. One way was through this military TV network called AFKN, American Forces Korean Network, that showed shows like Apollo Gold and like Soul Train and things like that. But another way was just the African-American GIs themselves who, you know, wanted to go to clubs and uh, wanted to go to hip hop clubs and immerse themselves in their own music, like the music mm. they like from back home. And South Korean locals who were also into hip hop and learning about hip hop and wanted to learn how to make the music and dance and all these things, they sought out these same clubs and were hanging out in this one neighborhood called Itaewon, which is right next door to the uh, U.S. military headquarters in Seoul. And it really was this really unique and interesting place where African-American soldiers literally taught these South Korean local kids how to dance, like how to do the running man, for example. Wow, that's um, cool, yeah. Yeah, and it turns out a lot of these, you know, South Korean locals, they ended up becoming architects of early 90s K-pop, and they're still giant, giant forces in K-pop today. I'm talking to Vivian Yoon, who loved K-pop but felt the need to hide it as a teenager. Now she has a podcast called K-pop Dreaming, talking about the history of K-pop and how it weaves in with her family's history and the history of Korea. So let's go back a bit now um, to what is arguably an early iteration of the first K-pop girl group, the Korean Kittens, a group who would perform for American soldiers in Southeast Asia. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we were just talking about 1980s hip hop. But even before that, like you mentioned, um, from yeah, the Korean War onward, the 50s, 60s, you basically had Korean citizens who had lost everything during the war needing a way to make money and survive. And one avenue that a lot of people found was by entertaining American soldiers who were stationed there. So you all of a sudden had groups like the Kim sisters who um, started singing and performing together and performing covers of popular American groups and bands uh, because that's the music the American soldiers wanted to listen to. And um, the Kim sisters, actually, it's really interesting. They got so popular among the troops that somebody connected them with an American manager and that manager flew the Kim sisters out to Las Vegas, where they had a residency, and then they performed on the Ed Sullivan show a bunch of times, and they're kind of considered the first uh, K-pop girl group um, that ever, sure. yeah, made it onto the charts, the U.S. pop charts. Okay, so back to the 80s. Tell me about this club, Moon Knight, um, because that really spawned a lot of future K-pop stars. Yeah, Moon Knight. It was... It was in this neighborhood called Itaewon that was really just a neighborhood catered to American soldiers. And it was one of the few hip hop clubs. But somehow, you know, word got out with all these South Korean um, dancers and musicians and people who wanted to know more about hip hop and R&B and 
you know, like New Jack Swing and all these mm. these sounds coming from the States, they all heard about Moon Knight. And it was it was actually a club that was specifically meant for African-American soldiers. It was not meant for South Korean locals, but because the owner was Korean, this guy whose nickname was Cowboy because he liked to wear a cowboy hat and boots. Mm -hmm. uh, if you knew Cowboy, you could get in. Or if you knew somebody <laughs> who knew somebody, you could kind of get in. And so that's how a lot of these local kids started going there. And then they, these people, uh, these Korean locals who hung out at the club ended up being some of the most influential legends of K-pop history, even... You know, now Blackpink, two of the members yeah. of Blackpink, the girl group, have ties to New Zealand, I obviously. I did know that, and I told someone that, and they didn't believe me. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I it's mean, been under-publicized here, which is amazing, because generally any time New Zealand has any connection to anything, it leads the news. That's so interesting. I would have thought New Zealand would be all over that, like <laughs> claiming them for themselves. Because, yeah, Rosé, one of the members, she was born in New Zealand. And then Jenny spent uh, like five years there when she was a kid growing up. And so her English, she speaks English because she, you know, lived in New Zealand. But um, yeah, so Blackpink, they're under this company called YG, which was known as like one of the big three or big four in K-pop. And YG was somebody who hung out at this club, Moon Knight. And if you look at sort of all the people who created these legendary K-pop groups of the past, um, they were all at this one club, Moon Knight. So it's pretty, pretty incredible looking at that history. Totally. So given the kind of the, maybe the cross-pollination that was going on in Seoul, it kind of makes it a bit sad that if you look at LA in the 1990s, there was a bit of tension between African-American communities and Korean communities. What was going on there? Yeah, so throughout the late 70s and 80s and early 90s, there was a lot of building tension between the Korean immigrant population in Los Angeles and the Black community. Um, there were all these historical forces that kind of left South Central, uh, the neighborhood, as this impoverished area. And then at the same time, Korean immigrants were, you know, moving to the States looking for affordable places where they could start their own small businesses. And so a lot of Korean immigrants ended up opening, you know, liquor stores and auto body shops and things like that um, in South Central. And there was just a lot of tension there. There was a lot of uh, cultural clash, a lot of miscommunication, misunderstanding. And and um, eventually all of that erupted uh, with the 1992 LA riots or the LA uprising, however you want to say it. Um, and yeah, a lot of Korean businesses were targeted during during that time um, because of that tension. Um, so there was a lot going on. And, and it's actually wild because April 19, 1992 is when the L.A. riots happened. Meanwhile, in South Korea, April 1992 is when the first ever K-pop boy band debuted <laughs> with their hit song, which incorporated rap into their music because the lead singer is Hoteji. He had been influenced at this club, Moon Knight, um, and fell in love with hip hop. So there was there were a lot of different things going on and, and yeah, it is really interesting to to look at the contrast between the two places. And then another key figure at the time, Tiger JK, the godfather of Korean hip hop. Yes. Tiger JK was originally from South Korea. He moved to Florida actually spent time in Miami and then moved to LA and he started to uh, try to become a hip hop artist. 
Um, and then the LA riots happened. And in the wake of the riots, like months later, uh, there was this hip hop festival that was put on to try and promote racial harmony um, between the different ethnic groups in Los Angeles. And that was Tiger JK's first time performing in front of a big audience. And, and he rapped and the crowd loved it. And then uh, soon after, he flew to South Korea to try and make it as a rapper there. And he went on to become a legend, just like you said, the godfather of South Korean hip hop. I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but the one song that almost everyone in our audience will know is Gangnam Style um, by the South Korean uh, artist Psy. Do we count that as part of the K-pop oeuvre? Um I don't yeah, know if I said absolutely. that word right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Psy represents like a huge turning point in K-pop history. Um Psy, the peak of like Psy's fame back in 2012 when he was, you know, all over late night talk shows yeah. and he was like dominating YouTube and everybody was doing that invisible horse dance everywhere. Um I was really like an anti-fan of K-pop at the time. <laughs> Uh, because I had distanced myself from it so much. And so seeing Psy blow up all of a sudden, it was just so confusing. It was such a weird moment in time where I'm like, how is everyone suddenly singing like Korean lyrics at me? But yeah, that was a huge like benchmark moment in K-pop history because it basically opened up the floodgates and showed the world that like South Korean pop music existed and it could successfully cross over um, into the Western world. Basically. And so a couple years after Psy is when BTS hit and everybody knows how that turned out. Psy, the Korean War, this sort of 1930s genre um, came out of Japanese colonialism, all these little things, eh? Um, the LA riots, all these little moments that combined to create this phenomenon, which is K-pop. And it makes you think about the butterfly effect and the way things could have easily gone another way. Ooh, I just got chills when you said that. Um, it really, I think what you just said is exactly how I see the podcast yeah. too. Um, because I didn't know anything about this history when I first started working on the show. And we just kept uncovering more and more layers and seeing how everything was so interconnected. And seeing how all of that history that you mentioned was also reflected in my own family history, that was super surprising and powerful. And, you know, everywhere around the world, um, we're all connected through these big, like, geopolitical movements and forces that seem so, so big. Mm -hmm. But all of these things have really direct and specific impacts on our lives, like on our grandparents' lives. And I know New Zealand, you know, they had their own um, role in World War II and and went over and fought Japan and things like that. Um, and yeah. like you said, like New Zealand's involvement in the Korean War and, and then you have like Korea's surprising involvement in the Vietnam War years later and all of these things are connected and it really showed me um, how we are all connected, you know, in this in this really interesting way. And when you look at pop culture, when you look at the music, you can see that history. Like you can really see those connections. And, and then arguably K-pop has been responsible for the world falling in love with South Korea in general. Well, at least South Korean culture um, from the food to the movies to the TV shows. Yeah, 100%. Um, there's this word called Hallyu 
which is sort of means like the Korean wave. And it represents like the rise of Korean entertainment and culture overseas outside of Korea. And everybody talks about Hallyu now. Um, but it really is a combination of everything you mentioned, because while BTS and Blackpink were like shattering records and and winning hearts, um, you also had things like Parasite and Squid Games and Minari yeah. and and Korean skincare and Korean food. And it just feels like there's this brand new spotlight on South Korea right now. Um, and it's just really interesting as a Korean American person to to see that because it's so not what it used to be like when I was growing up. Yeah, and, and hopefully there won't be any Korean teenage girls who feel embarrassed to love K-pop. Yeah, when I talk to young people today, uh, they're all very, very surprised. Like, they cannot imagine a world <laughs> where somebody would be ashamed of liking K-pop. Love it. Well, thank you for the uh, great work you've done on this podcast, Vivian, and for spending some time with us talking about it today. Uh, the podcast is called K-pop Dreaming. I've been speaking to Vivian Yoon. Uh, and good luck with the rest of it. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much.